Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The year is 1980. Sydney's streets are filthy, running rampant with crime and corruption. Puberty blues is onto the cinemas. Ice House is blaring on the stereo. It's humid and dangerous and a young man has decided to join the police force to fight crime. That man, of course, is my dad. Loose Units, the podcast, was created to tell the cases that wouldn't fit into my first book, Loose Units. But Loose Units was a series of fantastical tales that I wrote based on the real crimes my dad solved on the force back in the early 80s. So this season, dad and I are finally going to go back, back, back to the year 1980, and each week we'll be going chapter by chapter through Loose Units, the book, and Dad will tell us the story behind my version of events. It'll be thrilling, revelatory, and as always, very, very loose. Welcome to Loose Units Origins. Hello, and welcome to Loose Units Origins. Every week, uh, myself, Paul Verhoeven, and my dad, John Verhoeven, go through a chapter-by-chapter, blow-by-blow look at Loose Units, the book I wrote about Dad's time as a cop in the 80s. But you all know that. I mean, we've all, we've all been across this. And this week, we're looking at a very special chapter. It's the chapter that got me the book deal. Dad, this is chapter four, and it's called Autopsy Turvy. But before we get into it, how's your week been? My week has mm. been exceptional. Uh, but hang on. The week, it's just started. Oh, yeah, okay. How, so was, probably, how was last week? Oh, last week was excellent as well. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, sorry, just quickly, is the fridge is your fridge on? Um, should I go over and have a look? I have to leave my keys next to the switch so I remember to turn the fridge back on. Right. Just okay. bear with me, listeners. Sure. This is live. This is live podcasting, isn't it? Oh, it's it's thrilling stuff. Okay. Done. Wonderful. That was exciting. You understand what I mean about the keys, don't you? Uh I leave them on the floor look, wait, underneath what? the switch. So then when I look for my keys. You find and them eventually and, find them. All right, I hope I find them because it's an unusual place for them to be, so I might not find them. Um, God. Anyway, that reminds me. I then look at the keys, then look up and see that they're beneath the switch. Please never be a surgeon. I just I, I have to remember to suture back up um, Mrs. Wilson, so I put the keys in her abdomen, and if mm. I look for my keys before I go home, oh, what a day. <laughs> Um, now, Dad, this week, oh, that's, that's kind of on topic. I mean, first of all, one of the things that happened during the writing of Loose Units is I said to you, I've never seen a dead body, and I think I probably should. And you said, that's kind of hard to organize. And we God, sort of... T- God, I remember, Paul. Do you remember? I just... You know what? You used to be... 
I know that you're not obsessive in any way, but you were literally haranguing me. Yeah, yeah. On a, and it was really kind of, it was, and I, I understood. But you thought I could pull strings mm-hmm. and organize a trip for you to the, the morgue. But that's, and I kind of needed to let you know that it, I just couldn't do it. But I would be curious to know, because so many of our listeners across the world work in emergency services or, you know, especially after last season with Dead Serious, a lot of people work in the in the industries that revolve around the dead. And mm. I have a strange feeling that if I put a call out to listeners, I'd probably get a knock on the door and someone would take me to see a dead I body. I agree. I and, think that, that could have happened. And part of, I just need to stress this, Dad, and you know this, I, I talked you through this. Part of the reason I wanted to see a dead body was because it didn't feel right for me to describe what it felt like to see one if I hadn't seen one myself. In the same way that we went to the locations that were written about in the book, I thought Mm. it was only fair to try and experience that. And it wasn't because I wanted to get my jollies. I wasn't trying to shock myself or get a cheap thrill. I really wanted to know what it smelled like, what it felt like, what what the room was like, the chemicals, the kind of energy in the room. Because there's only so much people can convey in descriptions. And a lot of the book is me, you know, coming up with creative spins on things. So we eventually reached this point. I I was talking to Penguin and I said, guys, the the end of the book is very much up in the air. And it might be Dad and I going to a mortuary. And I wanted to bookend Loose Units with this story from this chapter, with you seeing dead bodies. Mm-hmm. And with me seeing dead bodies, I actually wanted to get back to Glebe Morgue or a morgue and kind mm. of create this really nice mirroring. And what you you said, and I had to tell Penguin halfway through the writing process was, mate, that's not going to happen. So, mm. and that's totally fine. Yeah. Um, but this chapter was the chapter that got me the book deal. It's the one I only provided one chapter and a plot outline for the book and a bit of a pitch. And do you remember when I let you read? This chapter, I think, I think you read it on my laptop out the front of Glider, which was um, my brother Mark's lovely cafe over in King's Cross. Do you remember? Mm. Reading? I do, I do. And uh, are you, in particular, pertaining to the point about Julian? No, we'll get to Julian later. I oh, mean, the okay. actual, just the sort of crux of. Okay, look, I thought it was for someone that had not been into a morgue or seen a dead body. Mm. I thought your description was on point. And really, really visceral. And you described it eloquently with sensitivity. Um, and I totally felt that you'd encapsulated my experience really, really well. And you, I, didn't, um, you didn't tell me what it felt like. No, you, I didn't. You told me roughly what happened. Mm, um, mm. But you didn't tell me what it actually felt like. And I was trying to... Because the, the you in the book is a character based on you and yeah, based on yeah. my understanding of you. So that was mm. part of the first book was me trying to grapple with and understand you as a person. Now that I know you 20 times better than I did, it's it's very different. But I mean, did that kind of imbue you with at least some confidence in terms of, very okay, much so. there's going to be a yeah. book about me? Oh, mate, it was brilliant. But um, one of the things um, that you did write about me in a very descriptive manner, which was mm-hmm. from a writer's perspective, mm-hmm. um, fantastic. But I need to let you know that um, you said to m- in the book that I basically vomited in a uh, sort of a, uh, what was the term? You used a phrase that described my projectile vomiting as in a very famous movie. Oh, exorcist sick. Mm. But that, yeah. are you aware, Paul, that that actually didn't happen? Yes. I didn't vomit. No, I know. 
Um, I have, and I've seen some terrible things since I since that first experience. I mean, but to be fair to all the listeners and to you, Paul, I remember that first time I ever went to the morgue. I remember it um, extremely clearly. I can remember pretty well the entire experience and I remember the fact that it felt quite surreal but we were in police uniform and the staff there who were working laboriously um, you know processing an incredible number of deceased Mm. um, they were fairly um, nonchalant and perhaps somewhat oblivious to, to our presence because they would have been used to showing police through over many, many, probably decades. Well, just quickly, because I feel like we might be um, excitedly skipping ahead slightly. Mm. So just to wind back to the start of the chapter. So it's chapter four, Autopsy-Turvy, and you said that on this, and I'm just going to read from this, on this particular day, there were 10 probationary constables with him. Three of the ten were trained school teachers. Fully qualified, they had all finished their degrees, but then decided not to teach and instead joined the police academy. It's unclear what it was about the prospect of teaching that drove them towards seeing dead bodies on a regular basis, but there's probably a link in there somewhere. So this this was very interesting to me, the fact that people in the police force were completely proficient in other areas. Now, you made envelopes, but you weren't Paul, school- Paul mate, I didn't mate, make envelopes. That's very... That's, oh, mate. What what did you do mate, then? You were, you were an apprentice toolmaker, right? It's a, it's yeah, a yeah, yeah. Which is a a long apprenticeship and involved with precision engineering. Um, and if you talk to people that have ever done that type of engineering, they'll explain mm. to you the tolerances that you uh, you work within. I mean, you know what a tolerance is in terms of of a unit of measurement. So just for you and the listeners to understand very, very briefly, if you get a piece of human hair, yeah. if you divide that piece of hair, say, into 30 pieces, okay? So mm-hmm. one thirtieth the thickness of a piece of human hair, they're the tolerances that we used to work with, okay? In terms okay. of measurement, okay. which is extraordinary. My point being it's an incredibly precise and highly skilled um, you know, sort of occupation that I chose to leave. But um, so, yes, it's, um, you know, I just feel as though I need to put that on the record. Um, but, I mean, yes, people from all, all we had um, ex-Vietnam helicopter pilots. We had, um, look, the, the, the complete gamut of, of professional people enter the New South Wales Police Force for probably the same reasons that a lot of us wanted to join and it'd be very interesting to go and do a Q&A now um, with prospective people that are, have either just joined or are thinking about joining and find out why they want to do it um, and, and the, the, there would be a myriad of reasons but, but but teachers I'm just curious about the teaching thing well look teaching uh, back then uh, was it was god I don't know look it's teaching's a tough gig and um well your parents were teachers at the time did you and i know that mum your mum and uh and your dad both teachers disapproved of your 
joining the police force for reasons we've outlined before. Mm. Mm. So did you tell them at any point that, hey, guys, it's okay, there are teachers here as well. Clearly nah. there is some sort of link there. Nah, never. I just thought it was great that there were teachers doing, you know, applying because it, it kind of, it was a level playing field. Mm. So no matter what you had done in your prior life, all that actually meant nothing on day one, on that cold winter's day at mm. the Redfern Police Academy when we were all 140, 150 of us. It, it's irrelevant. Your, your past means nothing. And for me, that was really exciting because it meant that I... It was like a clean slate. Yeah. I didn't care about anyone else's previous occupations. It was This was the time to really shine. That's how I looked at it. Um, and I think it's important in an organisation like the police force that you, that you recruit from a broad spectrum of the community because as police you are, you are sort of involved in the broad spectrum of all of, of, all of society. I mean, you don't just deal with, with, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's the criminal element and, the, and, and all the jobs you go to, that, that they, they, they cross all stratas in society. And um, I found it incredibly, for me personally, exhilarating and exciting to know that in my class was a, was a wonderful mix of, of people from different, um, you know, different professions. Yeah. Um, and it was great because, you know, you like to bring all the different experiences to the table. But, um, you know, I guess even if I had have got permission to take you to the morgue, Paul, yeah. um, and I can say this to you now, I would have been very uncomfortable because I don't think people should necessarily go and see that just I, I mean I understand that it would have been incredible fodder. Yeah. But I know that you've got an an amazing fertile imagination. Well I I, th- I, I wrote what I wrote without having seen them. So but, I but probably you, but, didn't need to, yeah. No, and and I think um you know, you don't necessarily have to know mm. that if you put your hand into molten steel, something terrible is gonna happen to you. Yeah, that's true. I'm quite curious. And we can get to this when it happens organically, but I'm very curious as to how this mix of people from different backgrounds with different inclinations of different ages reacted when they saw the dead bodies in the morgue. But let's go back. So this is, you get piled into a minibus and about 15 minutes later, you pull up outside the morgue. And it says here, there are lots of words used to describe dead bodies. In the police force, they called them deadens or stiffs, but when a young, green-as-hell John Verhoeven pulled up in front of the Glebe Morgan in a minibus, he didn't know that. He didn't know what to expect. And when this nervous little cluster of rookies headed downstairs, they passed through two huge doors and into a vast, cold, clean room filled with tables. On every single one was a body, and each body was being worked on simultaneously. They were in different stages of post-mortem. And we talked about this. I mean, I was expecting... I mean, we've, we've all seen the TV shows with, you know, the, the bodies with the toe tags. And first of all, were there any toe tags in play at None, this point? No toe tags. Okay, okay. No, we- no, no, no blankets, no clothing, no. They're all, they're all naked. Right. And they're the ones that are in good nick. But one of the most troubling things that I don't know whether you, whether I mentioned it to you or you decided not to talk about it in your first book, Paul, mm, mm was that they had babies there. 
and I remember looking at babies. That really shocked me. Right. I, I'm just trying to remember, Paul. I, I don't think I'd ever, ever. In fact, I can actually say to you and the listeners that I don't think I was aware of cot deaths back then right. or sudden infant death syndrome, as it's now called. My first experience with SIDS was in the police force. Um, that terrible, terrible event I went to when the paramedic had to be dragged off the bo- the baby. Yeah, yeah. And also a colleague of mine in the police force, he um, his baby had died of that very same cause. Um, so when I saw babies at the morgue and they'd pick them up and they would do the post-mortem on them exactly the same as, as an adult or a teenager. But most of the bodies, from my recollection, were in one piece. Um, obviously, there were a few that had had terrible car accidents, and that was evident by the fact that a lot of bones um, were projecting through the skin, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a compound fracture. But they were the relatively... Um, they were the, uh, a couple of things struck me. Um, look, I, I'm quite sure that myself and my nine colleagues, we were deeply... Uh, I, I remember there was... <clears throat> there's no noise except for the, the sore, but no one talks. Right. And we certainly weren't talking. And we were given free reign. We were allowed to walk around the tables. We felt as though, or I felt as though, I was intruding on something very reverent and very, um, because it's really difficult to kind of punctuate and give it, give it the terminology and, and, and the, the words that I want to describe my first time there, but it was sort of a reverence. Um, and you clearly are aware when you look at, I mean, you know you're in a morgue, you know you're looking at all these bodies, Mm-hmm. Um, but you kind of do know that they are dead. Now, that might sound a bit odd to the listener, but I've always believed that I can tell between someone um, deceased and someone, well, definitely someone sleeping. Although I did walk in on my father a few times a few months ago and I actually thought he was, um, in fact, when he was still at home, occasionally I'd visit my parents and my father would be in bed and I'd go in to see my dad on the bed and sometimes I'd stand there and I genuinely thought he'd passed away because he looked gaunt, emaciated. Uh, His his cheeks were sunken. And because I'd seen a lot of dead bodies before, he he kind of very much in a stereotypical way, he he fitted the mould of what a dead person. He looked a little bit like... And uh, I say this with great respect and reverence, but the best analogy I can give the people that haven't seen a dead person before, particularly an elderly dead person, is that they kind of look like people during the Second World War that had been in concentration camps. Not all of them, but but you definitely get that that sunken. Oh, like emaciated. Emaciated. Because it accentuates the, the bones underneath the skin. You know, the jaw around the eye sockets is, is a classic. Yeah. Here's a cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. But um we we were basically given free reign that that morning at the uh, Glebe Morgue. But you and, won't let uh, into the you won't I mean one thing <laughs> Occasionally in the writing of the book, I, I it was quite rare, but I did occasionally accidentally let certain threads slip. And one of them was the fact that you mentioned something called the murder rooms. Yeah, they had a few murder rooms. And that we, we, we never went into that. No. And so you're getting, okay, so you're getting a walk around the morgue and there's bodies everywhere, there's huge fridges. But yeah, can you tell myself and the listeners about the murder rooms and what they are and what they look like? Mm-hmm. Well, from memory, there were two of them, mm-hmm. and they had, funnily enough, everyone, the word murder room and then a number. So it was murder room one with the number, the number one. Murder room two. Now, what these rooms were, they were like they had a morgue table mm-hmm. where the body would be, but this was a person that had been murdered. They may have been murdered... Um, I remember walking in on the most extraordinary scene where they had a person um, naked mm-hmm. that had been shot multiple times. There were detectives. Uh, there were lots of people in there. And they had rigged up a coloured these coloured ribbons. From memory, they were pink. Mm-hmm. Pinky purple colour. And they had actually figured out, they had these sort of, um, coloured strings and what they were doing is that they were showing the entrance and exit wounds and it, it looked like if you can imagine if someone's been shot multiple times with multiple holes in them um, remembering that a bullet generally goes in and then if it leaves the body it often leaves with a, a larger amount of tissue so it can be a very minor Entry, room, entry wound, yeah. but you then turn the body over and you can see that the entire, for example, the, the whole back of the skull's been just 
just gone or or it may have gone through the body and out through the uh the spine and literally torn depending on what type of projectile it is i mean projectiles are designed these these boffins these scientists these ballistic experts remember it all starts in a laboratory with scientists that are working believe it or not there are people in this world that are working on more more what's the best way of putting this um more what's the what's the word where i'd like to sort of not not clinical more efficient yes more efficient ways to kill people i mean i drove down through Woolloomooloo half an hour ago when i came back from my constitutional and um i'm looking at these big guns on the uh the ships uh-huh. and it's kind of surreal to think that these guns that are amazing i mean Christine's brother took us on a guided tour of one of the ships a few months ago, and he was explaining to us one of the one of the anti-aircraft um, devices that's so dangerous, so incredibly lethal that no one's allowed on deck when they fire this thing, and it basically just cuts to shreds anything that's coming its way. Now, isn't it amazing to think that as a society, um, you know, we started off, I guess bashing people over the head with sticks and it's evolved and and that's all all that's really the essence of that is ballistics in terms of projectiles that fire from a weapon and these people in the murder room that had been shot um they had to figure out um where the the projectile had entered the human body and if it had stayed inside the body or if it had exited the body and I remember looking in and seeing this person that looked like they were strung up, like in a matrix of, of woven um, string. It was so interesting. And that, that, that sort of planted that seed for me. And I thought, this is really fascinating. Right. And then I remember going over to one of the tables and I watched pretty well a fair bit of the postmortem where they got a scalpel. It's funny... Um, Paul and listeners, if you have looked at a lot of film like TV and movies, you know how you get that like a, the V shape at the top? Where they oh, cut yeah, from shoulder yeah. to shoulder, then they, they bring it down to the sternum and then they cut down. But they they didn't do that in Sydney. What I saw is that they'd get a scalpel and they'd basically go from your Adam's apple mm-hmm. and they'd do a line, they'd cut all the way down to basically the top of your pubic area and then they would... Um, what, what they did, they got a plastic bag. These are the ones that I recall. And they'd put the plastic bag between the person's legs. Uh, and they would then basically get all the intestines and scoop out everything. And you, you beautifully um, described, I don't know whether beautiful is the word to use, but you described in, in, in ma- magnificent detail that you described the, um, the cavity the rib cavity, the you know the, the rib cage, mm-hmm. as that looking like a Viking ship with all the um, you know all the cross members and all the, the the sort of the spine, yeah, and and then they'd hose it and but the most traumatic thing um, that I saw that I mean this is one of these things that if you see it you'll never forget it till you die, and that is that. They got a scalpel and they cut. If you can imagine you're lying down, listeners, and they cut from one ear to the other, but not 
across your forehead, but from the ear around the back of your head mm-hmm. to the other ear. And then, and this is just so, God, I don't know whether they still do the same, whether they use the same technique, but the person that was doing the postmortem would get their eight fingers and slide them underneath the flap of skin Ooh, and literally flap of skin enough jesus and then they'd literally pull yep the skin the whole top of your head and they'd peel it sort of pulling it towards the front of the face and it would peel away from the skull and then so the hair's on the inside so you can't see the hair you're looking at basically what's underneath the the hair and they would pull it over the person's face and then clip it or secure it underneath the person's chin now can you visualize what i'm saying you look you can't you can no longer see the person's face yeah you can just see the underside of the scalp so the hair is effectively rubbing up against their face but you yeah, can't okay. see the hair Right. Then, once they've exposed the skull, they get this special saw. It's a circular saw, but it doesn't actually spin. It vibrates. And I had a particular interest in that because from my engineering background. And they would stand at the back and they would cut through the bone. And they were using big face shields. Funnily enough, we didn't have any protection. We were standing... There, you were I mean, in this, uniform, just sort of in uniform, just watching. No gloves, no masks, no, no, nothing. We're just standing there in our uniforms, and all of us were standing at different tables, watching different things happening. But I walked around, or I was actually standing near the chest, and this male guy, this guy, he was cutting the the skull, and he cut a perfect circle, and then he used a device from memory, possibly a it looked like a screwdriver and then he kind of pressed the screwdriver into the crack that he'd made and then he kind of levered the top of the skull off but it was there was a lot of suction from within so oh. it really it was like pulling a suction cap off glass and then all of a sudden it made this sort of that's it and and then the guy called me around and I stood there Looking at the brain, it was, it was, um, I was going to say magnificent, but I don't know whether that's the right word. I mean, imagine I'm seeing all this. I'm 20 years of age. I'm seeing all of this for the first time. And then one of the things that has, has remained crystal clear in my, in my visceral memory mm. is that he then removed the brain from the person. Yeah. And what do you think I could see once the brain was removed? I'm going to guess eyeballs and sinuses. No, no. That's funny you should say that, Paul, but you're actually looking into the skull, the base of it. Yeah. I could see a fairly dark, blackish, purplish, reddish, thick kind of cluster, and that my dear friends, 
from memory was where the brain is connected to, to the, the spine. spinal column. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? All those nerves. You could see. God, it's so complicated and amazing. And um, bearing in mind, everyone, that the top of the skull in medieval times was very often kept and turned into a cup. And, I've, and I had an opportunity to buy one of those cups. And Did you drink from it? Have you drunk? No, from I didn't it? get to buy it and I would never have drunk from it. But they used to line them with sterling silver and gold and they're very, very, very desirable. And weird. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I do agree with you that they are weird as well. So there are uses for um, various body parts, as we all know. What would um, you be okay with me? If I had to repurpose any part of your body after you died, you know, what... what I'm not talking about a skull cup, but is there anything you would be well, okay with? Well, I guess you could use my hand. You could dry it out and use it as a back scratcher. Okay. That's weird, isn't it? A very bespoke piece of one-off loose mm. units merch. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, speaking of eating and drinking, the next part of the chapter has you and the cadets somewhat shell-shocked. I'll, I'll read from here. The rest of the morning was a haze. They put the subdued rookies all back into the bus. Driving there, it had felt like a Contiki tour, but nobody said a word as they returned to the station. Then they went and had a late lunch. Surprising given the circumstances, but they had to eat something. At the local Greasy Spoon, John ordered the single worst meal he'd eaten in his life. At first, he was convinced the food only tasted bad because of the morning they'd had, but he later returned and sure enough, terrible, biblically rotten. Now, this is the Greasy Spoon that comes up quite a bit in the book. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's still there, but I've been to the, and you've taken me to the building where mm. you were yep, stationed yep. in Sydney. Yeah, yep. um, can you describe this establishment just in case anyone wants to go and actually eat where you ate when you were a cop? Well, uh, listeners, mm -hmm. you will all be very pleased to know that it no longer exists, and Whee! nor should it, and okay. nor should it, because what it was, now I'm not going to um, introduce uh, ethnicity into the uh, description, Suffice to say that it was a rancid hamburger joint. Uh, it was so bad that if there was ever a prisoner's meal that was left over, no police officer would ever partake of it. It would go in the bin. It was offensive and I had a real moral dilemma. And I used to ask myself and occasionally ask some of the sergeants, why is this place... Why do we use it? This food is subhuman garbage. And I have a feeling that the people that owned this sleazy, uh, it was just, it would not have passed any of the health standards, even of the day. Mm -hmm. It was it was disgusting and dirty. And I, I sometimes feel that one of the only ways they managed to stay afloat was the fact that they were supplying North Sydney Police Station with prisoners' meals. And we used to get a lot of meals because they would be entitled to breakfast, lunch and dinner, bearing in mind that prisoners were not held within the cells for that long unless there was a prisoner's strike, a jail strike, which there were. And, and then in turn, we could have... Because we had sort of a fairly big cell and two small cells. And these cells were Victorian and they were old and creepy and 
you would have expected at least ghosts and convicts. And the whole thing was very, very surreal. And the only thing inside each of these cells was one stainless steel toilet. So if you were in there with 10 or 20 people and you had to take a crap, you'd have to drop your dax, squat and shit in front of all these people that were in there for all sorts of different reasons. So you'd have people that hadn't paid a parking fine next to a child rapist, next to an arsonist, next to an escapee. How heavy is that? I mean, it's really disturbing. And then all these prisoners were entitled to be mm. fed. And as the, uh, as the junior sort of station hand, the sergeant would direct you to go down. You'd have to call the greasy spoon, which yeah. is what it was called. Yeah. You'd go down and you'd be handed these shitty plastic containers full of, full of just absolute crap. Slop, basically. It was basically, it was offensive. And then you'd hand, and some people might be going, well, you know, what do they expect? But hey, let's also look at the fact that innocent till proven guilty, mm. there's, a, there's a little thing. Um, and you'd, you'd, you'd pass this stuff through the, um, through the, uh, through the bars. And, um, and remember that amazing story that we won't tell today, Paul, but the amazing story about the guy. Remember that guy that. Oh, um, God, that's, uh, that, that's we'll in electric blue. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Fuck, that's heavy. Yeah. Um, and as I said, um, yeah, it, it was really, it was bad and, and, and just on many levels, you know, fucked up. Stressful and weird. Yep. Well, I mean, I'm just really interested in the idea of, because whenever I worked shift work, and this might sound like a fairly banal detail, and we've never talked about this before, but, you know, if you work in a business park, you're always eating at those crappy cafes. If you work... Um, Let's say you work in Fitzroy, you're probably spending all of your money on really good food all the time. I'm really curious, and this might sound like a small detail, but what were you doing for lunches when you were when you were there over your first months in the police force? Was were you packing lunches? Were you no. buying lunch every Paul, day? Paul, you are you are so sweet. Packing lunches. Can you imagine me hopping on a bus in full yep. uniform mm-hmm. because to get free travel in the police force back then? you had to um, travel in full uniform. And I quickly learnt, very, very quickly learnt, not to travel in my police uniform. uniform. I did it once. Mm. And it was like the eyes were just burning into me. And I just thought... And of course, then people come up to you because they think policemen know everything. So you'd have people asking you directions that you had no idea about. Um, Now, as ashamed and... Um, slightly awkward I am to answer that question, Paul. Um, pretty well on duty. Mm. Most police officers, particularly when I was in the job, I don't know what it's like now, but we used to go to McDonald's and uh, that's how we ate. I ate McDonald's every shift and um, because it was half price. Every shift? Every shift, without a doubt. That's a nightmare. Yep. We'd pull into the um, McDonald's that's still there in Cremorne We'd walk in in police uniform. They'd hit that magic button on the register called police promo mm-hmm. and automatically 50% discount. 
Did you get? You, uh, did you did you get a discount on all pork products because you were in fact pigs? Um, Paul, I don't think McDonald's sell any pork products. They have bacon on their burgers sometimes. Oh, yeah, but I, I don't think they did that back then. This is back in the early eighties. But I loved I loved having a, a chocolate thick shake, and, uh-huh. and 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 I'm I'm. But I, look, I'm not doing an ad for that particular company because I no. I have my own views. But the thing is. Um, you know, I'd have a large fries. I'd have a quarter pounder with cheese. Um, and, and and the best thing about that whole thing was, like in the movies, occasionally we'd just get into the car and you'd get an urgent duty run, and you had to just you knew mm. that by the time because what we'd do is we had an armrest, and I would always get the burgers and pop them down between us, then press the armrest down. Yeah. But due to the, the the extreme tension in driving at high speed, by the time you'd actually finished the chase you would have to go back to McDonald's and reorder because the food had become it had, it had become airborne sometimes the hamburgers would be super squashed the patty would fly out or try to escape the con- the confines of its wrapping you'd have chips from arsehole to breakfast round your feet they'd be gumming up the pedals um, your the senior man would be totally pissed off because he's trying to because back in those days uh He'd have to use he or she would have to use a street directory. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine that at 100 kilometres an hour, tearing around corners, and he's telling you left, right. Because when you first started in an area, you didn't know. I mean, you had to try and you know learn. But North Sydney was a very, very big and complicated area. Of course. Um, so yeah, you either didn't eat or you'd have to um, go back. Although we did have the big cookups on Thursday morning around about 2 a.m., which as is, I think yeah, I've you- said to you. You was the to... ultimate time to go out and commit all crimes because there were no police actually. Can I, Dad, I just need to say I know a lot of people in various trades and in various, what I would say, are pretty rough industries who pack their lunches. So I'm curious as to why you thought that was an adorable notion just to whack some stuff in a lunchbox. What's wrong? What's wrong with the lunchbox? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but it has. Connotations for me right, yeah. of being back at school. You think you're in, you think it's something losers and nerds do. Paul, when Get I was a little kid, I yeah. you know I, I got a gold star for sharing my lunch. No, you don't know that story. No, we'll save it. I mean, I, okay, so I I guess I would like to hear from people and hear what you think: Maccas or lunchbox? Just 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 weigh in. Just let us know. And also. That's all the time we have for this week's episode of Loose Units Origins. Next week, let's see what chapter up to next. <gasps> Dad, we're doing Len Beta next week. Oh, that's heavy. That is some heavy shit. This is where the heavy shit starts. Yeah, that's so, heavy. So Dad's done his kind of preliminary training, uh, a little bit of it anyway, and then he gets paired up with his first buddy, a senior guy who is, well, I had to name Len Beta. That's not his actual name. It's close, but it's not his actual name. Mm. And Dad has been contacted by several members of the police who know who this guy is and mm. had other stories so i think next week's going to be a pretty juicy episode of lucy and its origins thank you everyone for all your kind words and here's a thing that i would recommend dad i would recommend that at some point over the coming weeks we talk about the staircase so if you haven't seen the true crime series on netflix the staircase go and watch it because at some point over the coming weeks for a loose ends dad and i are going to weigh in and you know talk about uh, whether we think he did it or not, which is a very loaded subject. Every time we all catch up, Tegan and Dad and Mum and I, we all talk about it. So 
We'll be doing that soon. Also, don't forget to grab Electric Blue. It's in bookstores and bookstores in Victoria are open. So go and flood the bookstores. Grab as many copies of Electric Blue as you can. And we'll see you next week for Chapter 5 of Loose Units, the book. But we'll see you later this week for Loose Ends. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Cheerio. See ya. Bye, mate. Bye-bye. Psycho. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.